I always love this time of year. I think it's beautiful outside. Uh, we certainly enjoy it, and I enjoy being here with all of you. Uh, we're talking about this idea that Christians are designed, that God has called us to be vastly different from the world around us, to be what we would call radical in how we approach our life, and that we have the freedom to do that because it's such a stark alternative between the life of a faithful Christian and the life that is lived in the world, that there are many, many routes to get us uh, away from God, but there is only one route to get us close to God. And when we're faced with such a stark contrast, and when we're faced with such odds and such a terminal condition, such as death and con condemnation, that we must radically pursue the singular alternative that leads us to salvation and to the throne of God. We've talked about the way we approach evangelism and service, and today we're going to talk about an idea that is probably the most commonly associated with Christianity and with religion in general and faith, and that is our behavior. And the fact that in general people define Christians based on what it is they abstain from, what it is they don't participate in, the things of the world that they don't take part in. Uh, there is an attitude uh, and perhaps a perception that is associated with those things. Outward expressions are often the most obvious way to identify any religion. Uh, we see this still throughout the world. Uh, we see it in the clothing that people wear. We see it in the hairstyles that exist uh, through the religious world. And we also see it in the behavior that people, people choose. We see it in ritual. Uh, we see a lot of outward expressions of inward faith. And that is, uh, that is how religion is largely defined visually and conceptually. People that choose to do things differently, do things in a strange way. So we associate behavior with religion. And Christians are often thought of as simply a people that avoid certain things, right? We don't go out and party. We don't engage in worldly lifestyles. We, we pursue monogamous relationships and uh, a certain standard of value and behavior in the world. And the idea that people have of Christians is we abstain because God wants us to. God wants us to not do certain things, and therefore we don't do them in order to please God. That is not wholly untrue, but it is a very reductive way of looking at Christianity and faith, and it would be an oversimplistic way for us to pursue that life. Because simply not doing certain things because we think not doing it pleases an all-powerful God is not a sustainable attitude to have. In any relationship that you have, choosing behavior based on does it please another person is not sustainable. Not in parenthood, not in your spousal relationships, not in work relationships. In almost no case does simply choosing a behavior because it makes another person happy or is pleasing to another person, is that sustainable. It's not the way we want to approach a relationship with people we're concerned with or care about. There is something deeper that motivates us in the important and significant relationships in our life, and there's something deep and important that motivates us and calls us to this standard as Christians. So today we're going to talk about that radical abstinence that we pursue as Christians. 
the way we hold ourselves to a different standard of behavior, and not just that we do, but why we do. The world looks at this and defines us this way, and in fact even mocks us over it. Um, there are movies made that poke fun at super socially conservative Christians. If you've seen Footloose, you know what I'm talking about. Um, there are these caricatures made of Christianity and of values that are held by people of faith, and that they are restrictive to general people, that they hold back the expression of self and they hold back the freedom that people wish to have to live their life as they want to. But this has always been the case. It's always been the case that we, and I say we in a, in a broad sense as Christians, have been singled out as being strange for the things we don't do as much as we are strange for the things that we do choose to do. So how different is it to just say no to the bad things? And this is where I want to divert from the typical way the world looks at us. Because the world sees us as we just, we just choose to not do certain things. We choose to abstain from certain behaviors. But if that's all we're really doing, we're not doing a whole lot. Because not doing certain things is actually pretty common. You know, people want to lose weight and they go on a diet so they don't eat certain foods. Or they don't just sit around and watch TV all day. People want to pursue a different lifestyle, and they choose not to participate in the things that were a part of their old lifestyle. It's very common in our world to choose to abstain from certain behaviors and certain things. We don't take unnecessary risks with our health, with our well-being. We choose, even people who live in this world choose to be faithful to one another. They choose to treat one another with kindness and not uh, with, uh, with rudeness and, and mean-spiritedness, it's not really that uncommon in our world for people to choose to not be a part of something or to hold back from participating in a certain behavior. What is uncommon are the things that we often choose not to participate in as Christians. That's what sets us apart. That's what makes us strange to the world around us. But we, as much as the rest of the world, have to break free of understanding that abstinence as simply pursuing non-sinful behaviors over, uh, over good or desired behaviors, according to God's word. And there's different motivations for why we do the things we do. There are people in this world would not identify as Christian, do not have a particular faith to speak of, but they live very good, wholesome lives. And there are people that claim Christianity that live not so wholesome lives. We've seen that. So it is, it's, it's not a, as simple as saying good and bad, and good people do good things and bad people do bad things. But people do things for different reasons. And they choose different behaviors for different reasons, and we choose to not do certain behaviors for different reasons. I have known people who were vegan. That is, they do not consume any animal products whatsoever. I have known people who were vegan because they were making a dietary choice for their health. And I have known people who were vegan because of ethical choices, because they didn't believe in factory farms and, and uh, the treatment of animals. They both live the same lifestyle. Completely different motivations for living it. Also, I saw a brilliant piece of marketing a while back. Um, I bought a, a new pair of shoes uh, from uh, a company that is known for their 
ethical behavior or their ethical mission, and they advertise these shoes as vegan shoes, which is just a fancy way of saying fake leather. So brilliant marketing, uh, because fake leather doesn't sell as well as vegan shoes. So I own a pair of vegan shoes, and it's just because they were cheap. Uh, but so everybody is motivated by different things, and we make our choices for different reasons. Um, the strange thing isn't avoiding certain things. The strange thing for Christians is why we do what we do. Why do we abstain? The world would say that we abstain from certain things because God is arbitrary, uh, he is restrictive, and he is cruel. That's what the world says. I've talked to atheists. I've heard their, their reasonings. And I feel bad because I think people that are skeptical or have trouble accepting the concept of God have just been taught so poorly what it is we believe God to be. Because they say, why would I want to serve a God that arbitrarily tells me I can't do certain things? Why would I want to serve a God who demands praise from me in order to be happy and punishes me if I don't give him praise? What a narcissist. I've heard people call God a narcissist because their understanding of praise and obedience is so different from what we understand and what we teach. So the world says, oh, you don't do this, that, or the other it, because your God arbitrarily said this is wrong and you must do it this way and I don't want you to experience fun, good, or enjoyable things. God is arbitrary, restrictive, and cruel. That's one way of thinking about God and Christian behavior and Christian abstinence. But that's not why we do what we do. Because we don't believe God to be any of those things. It's because God made us to be very, very powerful. That's really why we abstain. You say, well, God is all-powerful. Yes, he is. But he made us to be very, very powerful. And the very, very powerful thing he did, it wasn't putting us at the top of the food chain, and it wasn't giving us dominion over the world, and it wasn't, it, it was the fact that he gave us free choice. It's the greatest blessing and the greatest challenge. When God made us, he had the opportunity. He could have just made us completely humble in service to him. No choice. But he chose to give us the ability to choose. And that makes us so powerful. The most powerful person in any situation is not simply the one who can do whatever they want. It's the one that can do whatever they want and exercises restraint. That's the most powerful person in a situation. Being able to do what you want and just doing whatever you want, that's a bully. That's a bully. We don't like bullies. But the difference between a bully and someone who stands up to a bully is one does not exercise restraint. The other one is restrained until they don't, they can't be anymore, until they don't need to be anymore. And that's the difference between a hero and a bully. It's the difference in Superman and Lex Luthor. It's the difference in the good guys in the white hats and the bad guys in the black hats in a, in a John Houston, uh, John Ford Western. That's how we see the world. We understand these things, and it's the difference between the Christian and those who do not live in the faith of Jesus Christ. We have the ability to do whatever the rest of the world is doing. We just choose not to, because God made us powerful enough to do that. 
And we respect that power that he gave us. We respect that liberty and freedom he gave us. And we choose to exercise restraint in respect of that power. We see this uh, in the, the verse that Travis read for us. Just prior to that, and we also see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's writing about how we follow Jesus. And he's writing in the context of people that are struggling with the law and some of the regulations of the law and how they're applied and how they're enforced and how they're bound on others. And he's saying, look, you have a lot of freedom. You're no longer bound by this part of the law. And in Galatians, he's talking specifically about circumcision. By the way, it has some very harsh words uh, for the people that would bind the law on others. If you read what he writes in there, um, he says, you know, these people are going around saying you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Well, that's the old law. That's not bound on you anymore. And Paul, we think of Paul as you know, this great uh, scholar and teacher and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, I wish those people that were teaching you that, I wish the knife would slip. He says it. He wished that they just cut themselves off. Uh, Paul was kind of harsh sometimes. But in these verses and the verses surrounding what Travis read for us, Paul says, you have a great freedom. You have great liberty. You have the power to choose. But remember not to let that power and that liberty and that freedom provide an opening for Satan. The beauty of the fact that we have choice and freedom is that we have the freedom to choose Christ. But the downside is we also have the freedom to choose something else. And it's the exercising of that restraint that demonstrates not just our power, but the power of God for making us the way we are. We do not abstain simply because God made arbitrary rules to restrict us from having a good time, and we're going to do that to make him happy. We do it because we see things differently than the rest of the world, and we acknowledge that God gave us a great blessing because he loved us enough to give us the freedom to live life on this earth with some choice. And in return, out of respect, we choose him with that choice. And we follow him where he leads us. It is the restraint of free people that speaks louder than the indulgence of those who are coerced. I'm going to say that again. It's the restraint of free people that speaks louder than the indulgence of those who are coerced. We are making a statement by how we choose to live that even though we could do whatever we wanted, we choose not to. So why? Why do we choose restraint? Well, there's actually some important historical and philosophical things that have changed in humanity over time. One of those is the recognition of the body and soul concept. There was a time when most philosophers would say you have a body uh, physically and then you have a spiritual being or a soul or, or whatever, and those two are completely separate from one another. Uh, it was actually quite a bit later. Uh, Descartes was one of the first to say, actually, you have two parts of your being, but they're kind of close together. If you read scripture, we see that this is the case. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that the things we do physically can impact us spiritually. And the things that we do spiritually can impact us physically. Um, honor your father and mother, that, it, that, that you may live long. 
Uh, and later on, that's referred to uh, as the first commandment with a promise. The promise was, you will be blessed in this life if you honor your parents. You will have a, a good life if you honor your parents, generally speaking. There's a lot of things that God tells us to do. The Proverbs are full of good advice, general advice, that if you live a holy life, you have a better life. So there are physical things we do that improve us spiritually, and there are physical things we do that damage us spiritually. The two are connected. The physical and the spiritual are connected. We recognize that. It's part of why there are, uh, there's a lot of ordinances and regulation and rules around relationships and marriage and sexuality in Scripture. That's another thing people look at and go, why in the world? That's nothing like what the world is doing. And by the way, if you think it's bad now, um, it might seem that way, and, and I don't want to sound like, you know, the, someone who's uh, blushing at Ed Sullivan showing Elvis Presley, but, I mean, if you listen to some of the lyrics of modern music, you can't speak them in public. They're obscene. And we, and we look at that and go, oh, it's terrible, it's gotten so terrible, but that's, that's the world, that's history. I mean... Uh, debauchery and indulgence and sexuality, it's always been a part of our world. It's just expressed differently now. Maybe even more openly, but those things cycle through. The point is, in Scripture, when we see, and we've taught this wrong, by the way. We have, we have taught this incorrectly, I think, at times. When we see the picture of human sexuality and relationships, we kind of focus in on the rules. Okay, you're supposed to have one person forever. Yeah, okay, great. But why? But why? Because the Bible says that when you in, enter into an intimate moment with someone, a relationship with someone, you are responsible for their soul. You become responsible for their soul. You are bound together. God talks about you know engaging with prostitutes and those things in, in the old law. That's why. Because the Bible and God actually recognize that there is a connection between what we do physically with our bodies and what happens to our soul and spirit and how the two are connected. That's a relatively new concept in the world, but it's one we have been taught from the beginning in Scripture. We were made in God's image, and we were made with two very distinct parts that fit together and impact one another. So we have to be mindful of that. And we recognize, unlike a lot of the rest of the world, that our body is not our own. When we ask the question, why? Okay, you have a choice. You have the ability to... Why do you choose restraint? Why do you choose to abstain? Why do we choose to behave according to a standard that God has given us? Because we know we're created in God's image. We recognize that we don't own this thing. We're keeping it. We're using it. We are stewards of it, but we don't own it. We're going to give it back one day. We're only here for a little while. We recognize, as we mentioned, that physical and spiritual things intersect, and we understand that God actually dwells in us, that a portion of God lives in us. You know, one of the things we see that is a beautiful, beautiful parallel. I love the parallels in Scripture. I talk about them a lot. That when we go from through the Old Testament into the New Testament and into the Christian age that we live in, one of the things we see, there's a lot of themes. One of the themes that we see crop up a lot is the dwelling place of God. 
Where does God live? We think of God as dwelling in heaven. And we see images in scripture of a throne room and God is there and Jesus is with him now. But it was very important that God have a place to stay when he was with the people. They built a tabernacle and they hauled it around with them everywhere they went so that God had a place where he could come and be with them. God actually walked around in the garden. We don't think of God as moving about us or interacting in a physical, real way. But he did in the garden and he did in the tabernacle. And then when they built the permanent dwelling, the temple, read about the building of the temple. Read about the consecration of the temple. Read about how they treated the temple. It was literally built to be the house of God. Other religions in the world have built houses of worship, houses of dwelling for their gods. But we, in our history, in the history of God's people, Jehovah, God's people, they built a dwelling place for God and he lived there. God went and hung out in the temple. And there were certain times when mankind, through an intermediary like a high priest, could go and talk to him, see him, interact with him. We don't have a temple today. We have church buildings, but that's not a temple. We, we, we might have weird concepts of church buildings and all of that, but I don't think any of us think that God lives here um, when we're not around during the week or something. That's not what this building was meant to do. Where does God dwell now? God dwells within us. That, that curtain was ripped when Jesus died, and he rose again so that we could have access through his blood to God. And we, as Christians, one of the reasons we choose to live to a certain standard of behavior is not because there's arbitrary rules and God just wants us to obey. It's because we recognize that body and spirit are bound together, that one touches the other. The body does not belong to us. And God has chosen to dwell in the heart of the Christian. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, God lives with us, in us, and through us. And because the two connect, we have to live a certain way. And we choose to live a certain way. We understand that we have value. And we are worth upholding a standard with. We are worth taking care of. We are worth acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross to offer us salvation to bring us into right standing with God, to free us from sin, and therefore there is a certain value attached to us, to the individual, to the soul and the body. And so we choose to live acknowledging the value, what we, what we were paid for. I can remember uh, growing up, when you get to that certain age where all your friends, you and your friends, you start, you're driving, you're mobile. Now that was a big deal, by the way, when I was growing up. Um, I notice with kids, maybe the generation right behind me, driving's not like a big deal anymore for them. Um, not every kid, there's some, but I know, I know a person right now who is close to 20 years old and to my knowledge does not have a driver's license and doesn't intend to get one. That is so strange to me. I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. Now, the reason was, we didn't, we, we barely had the internet back, back in the dark ages. We barely had the internet, and we certainly didn't have it on our phones. Uh, we didn't have streaming. You had to have a TV, and you actually had to be at the TV at a certain time to watch a show. I know, weird concept. 
Um, the only way you could be entertained, the only way you could see your friends, the only way you could have uh, social experiences was to go out and to be mobile. And so getting a driver's license was a huge deal. You know, when you get 15, 16, then you're ready to start. That was a big deal. And my generation might be the last generation where that was universally a big deal. I think now it's case by case. Because I think a lot of kids could care less. Because they have everything they need. Anyway, when people started getting those vehicles, you could walk through the parking lot. You could look at the vehicles and you could tell who worked and saved and paid for at least part of that vehicle themselves and who were given that vehicle by a parent or a grandparent. They didn't pay a dime for it. And the way you could tell was not how nice the vehicle was or anything like that. It was how it was treated. How it was treated. You could walk by and look in a car and look in the back seat and it's full of gym clothes and textbooks and trash and McDonald's. and Well, that person was given that car. And it's not washed and they drive it hard. Someone gave them that car. Because the people that drove carefully, that cleaned their car, that washed it, that kept the trash out, that kept it picked up, they worked and they earned and they saved and they bought that themselves. And the price they paid for it, they understood. And the value that was in that thing, they understood. And so they treated it accordingly. When we understand our value because God dwells in us and Jesus died for us, we treat ourselves differently. That's why we alter our behavior in comparison to the world. Not because we're just rule followers and God's the latest set of rules that we've chosen to follow. It's because we understand and we believe that what the Bible says is true, that Jesus Christ died for us to rescue us from sin, and so we live accordingly. It matters that we have the opportunity to be picky about the way we live. We have the opportunity to be picky about the way we live because we know that we are worth too much not to be. We, when we understand the value that is in us because of the price that was paid for us, we treat ourselves differently. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It matters to us that we look like Jesus. That we are reflection. Of Jesus. Just as Jesus is a reflection of the glory of God, we are a reflection of Jesus and therefore a reflection of God Himself. When the world sees us, we want them to see the one who bought us and the price that was paid. That's why we choose to live the way we do. Now, why am I telling you this? Is it because I think you guys are all a bunch of debaucherous fiends that need to learn how to live? No. It's because we all understand that there is a certain standard and there are certain things that are required of us and certain things that we require of ourselves as Christians, ways that we want to live. But it's important that we understand why. And it's important that we have a firm grasp on why. Because there come times in life where we are encouraged or tempted or drawn away from that way of living. And if we do not understand why, it is much easier for the world to throw us off course. You have no, no, need, no need to look further than the Old Testament, the old law. It's just a set of rules. And when the people lost touch with why they were to follow those rules, they forgot the rules. 
well, we don't have just a set of rules anymore. We have a story, and we have the scriptures, and we have the example. And so it is a much different form of standard to follow. And if we do not understand why, this world will eat us alive. But we want to understand why we choose what we choose, and we want to understand why God says what he says, and we need to understand it so we can help the world understand it. We do not follow a God who is arbitrary, restrictive, or cruel. We follow a God who made us more powerful than we needed to be. And we exercise that power responsibly through restraint because we understand some things about our relationship to God and with our bodies and with our lives that the world doesn't understand. We don't belong to us. How we live impacts who we are. Soul and body are not mutually exclusive. Because God made us the way we did and we, the way he did, and we want to look like him and we want to look like his son. We don't want to feel like we are at home here. And the more we live with one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus, we start to feel more and more at home here. We're supposed to feel out of place. We're supposed to feel different. But sustainability in that difference requires that we understand why. We do it because the price that was paid for us was far too high. We are worth far too much to settle for less in how we live. And I think it's important that we understand that because it helps us each day to wake up and take that next step and to go further. We don't want to be just good enough as Christians. Now, God's grace is sufficient. We know that, that good enough by our standard with Jesus Christ in the equation, it's, it may be all we need. But we don't want to live half-hearted. We don't want to live holding back, and we don't want to live settling for less. Get all the blessing that God has in store for you. Get all the blessing that God provides by living according to his will. I'm going to ask Jonathan to come up and lead us in, in this next song. And as we sing that, if you need encouragement, if you need prayer, if you need help with that, let's work together to live the life worthy of the death of Jesus Christ. We read.